Welcome to the latest episode of Computer Vision Decoded, where we help you make sense of the quickly evolving world of computer vision. In today's episode, we're gonna dive into four methods you can use to make 3D models from images. We're gonna talk about video and image-based structure from motion. We're gonna talk about stereo vision and SLAM. And those are four different techniques that you can use today in your computer vision applications. We're also gonna show this through the lens of how we're actually implementing it today at every point. So this isn't just theoretical, these are things being used to solve real world problems. Let's jump into this episode. Jared, I'm really excited to have you on the show today. We're gonna talk about four ways that you can reconstruct a scene using structure from motion, using images to make a 3D model and you being an expert have been doing this since, uh, you know, you've done your PhD in this sort of line of research, you would be a perfect person to talk about this. And uh, we're going to we're going to talk about this narrative through what we've done at every point, which powers stock power reports. And we have every point as an API for developers to build all sorts of unique spatial computing products on top of. And uh, but if we go way back when I started this company in 2013, we had launched an iPhone app to measure stockpiles. And it was magic, but not to you, not to people in computer vision, but it was definitely magic because people were just walking around a pile, taking a video, and somehow they're getting a volumetric report. And so can you talk about the first way in which we can take a video and make a 3D model out of it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and you already touched on that that sort of key word there, structure from motion. You know, which which so structure from motion at the highest level is a process by which 3D information is extracted from 2D imagery. And so and to start, you know, breaking that apart, you know, that 2D imagery could be uh, images, you know, still photos that were taken, could also be a video that was recorded. Um, you know, and and so it's, there, there's some flexibility in the, the kind of imagery that's captured. You know, and then from that imagery, you are extracting 3D information. So you're recovering, you know, where were these, you know, cameras, or where were these images taken in 3D space? How was, if someone recorded a video, how were they walking through that scene in 3D? Um, as well as uh, what, um, you know, what 3D geometry was the, you know, a, mm -hmm. a particular points in that image that's triangulated uh, into 3D points in the scene or are we recovering some sort of triangular mesh, you know, some sort of solid representation. So structure from motion encapsulates a lot of these uh, techniques, you know, taking imagery and generating 3D content. Um, it's kind of just off a little, you know, side comment. You know, so back during my PhD, you know, a lot of the work I was doing was with structure from motion, but it was for crowdsourced data collection. So dealing with you know, imagery from different cameras, from different people, from different points in time. You know, you had no control over the the capture patterns, the way that people were walking through that environment. Uh, so taking that sort of very generic structure from motion pipeline, and now mention what you said here about this, you know, magical, you know, iPhone experience that we built, you know, many, many years ago, where someone is, you know, pulling out their iPhone, recording a video in this case, you know, and walking around, a stockpile, so a pile of you know mulch, sand, gravel, dirt, whatever it is. But you know, walking around that pile, capturing that video, uh, we were able to then run structure from motion on that video in order to recover the 3D geometry of that pile in order to generate a stockpile measurement. Um, and so there were a lot of a lot of neat things there, uh, and and we we can dive into them. Um, but like, just thinking about well, how do you take 
you know, sort of generic structural motion pipeline, something that can work on all kinds of imagery, you know, and when you're, when you're targeting, uh, you know, an iPhone or a video, there's a lot of different ways you can tweak the algorithms or accelerate things or uh, add robustness because, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with an iPhone or I'm dealing with a video or I'm dealing with a stockpile, you know, and, and so, but, um, you know, taking mm -hmm. that structural motion and targeting that use case. But yeah, at the highest level, structural motion extracts that, extracts that 3D data. Okay. Well, I'm going to show, uh, my screen accidentally showed earlier, if you are happen to be on the non-audio version here, I'm just going to show you guys, um, here we go, um, just kind of a, a video in which the Stockpile Reports user would, would take, and you're seeing they just walk in a circle. It's not perfect. We have some lighting issues here, I would say. You know, it's kind of washed out. But that's it. I mean, that's, that's, that's basically... All they did to make a 3D model. Let's just play it over again. Um, so, like, what's happening there? So, how are we getting from that to a 3D model? What you touched on there? Yeah. So, so a lot of the techniques behind the scene are are leveraging uh, features and key points, you know, and motion tracking. So, identifying unique parts of that scene or unique parts of that image and tracking it frame to frame. So, for instance, this case of you know a pile of dirt. You know, maybe there's um, you know, a little speckle of, you know, white in there, or a little speckle of dark, or, you know, there, there's going to be unique points, unique patterns. And so what the computer vision software is doing is it's identifying, you know, thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, you know, it's, it's identifying a ton of unique points uh, in that image and then following those points from image to image to image. So for instance, you know, if there was you know, some point on the front surface of that pile, as I walk around that pile for that first, you know, 10 seconds, you know, maybe I'm going to see that point in my view and I've seen it from many different angles. But eventually, as I start to move further around the pile, that point has fallen out of my camera's view and it's no longer visible. But mm -hmm. because we were able to track the position of that point, you know, in that 2D imagery across many frames and then from many different camera angles, we can then solve for, well, what camera angles were those? as well as what's the 3D position of that point. So a process of triangulation. So mm -hmm. recovering the position and orientation of the camera, as well as triangulating the 3D depth and 3D position of that point. And so if you do this, not just for one point, but as I hinted at, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, uh, you know, if you do this just for, you know, all of the points that, that you can identify, um, then you end up with this really you know, dense set of connections, dense set of feature tracks, dense set of you know, key point tracks you know, that are, have been, you know, been followed from frame to frame. And, and new ones are continually detected. So as I move around the pile, parts of the pile disappear, new parts you know, are appearing, um, and, and you know, all of those can be linked together to generate that, that 3D reconstruction. Okay, so yeah, I'm gonna, again, for people, if you're, if you're watching this on YouTube, I'm, I have a visual up on the screen showing kind of what he described. So I'll, I'll try to verbally describe what, he, what he's saying. But basically, I have this pile. So I, or I just showed a video prior to that and realized I didn't really describe it very well. But someone just walked a loop around a pile of rock. And now what I'm seeing here is it looks like a pile. That pile is a bunch of 3D dots. And then there's this this ring of blue around it. And what if I zoom in on this screen you'll see these little green little triangles. And that's, if I click on one, that's just one of the one of the images from that video extracted. 
and we're able then to triangulate where each of those images are around that pile in 3D space. And then these blue lines are basically connectivity saying, okay, this camera here along this pile or this image also has sim uh, matched features with other images around the pile because I'm going to see that part of that pile for several seconds before it's out of view. So that's what it's done. It's just built that connectivity, right? And yep. saying, uh, it's building, we like to call it like a web of connectivity. Stronger the web, the more connectivity points, the better the, the you know, the less air you'll have accumulated throughout this, this, this 3D reconstruction. Yeah. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, yeah. And so you get some speed ups because we're using video because we know some things, right? Like, you know that I, I can't take an image and then the next image is on the other side of the scene. It's got to be somewhat near the the last image that we're using this, right? So Exactly correct. Exactly correct. So there's, there's that sort of temporal information there. So knowing that this is a video, you know, there's going to be there's only, you know, a certain amount of change that can happen from frame to frame. Uh, within that video sequence. And so we're instead of starting this search from scratch, you know, we can you know leverage that that temporal information to know that frame to frame there, there's there's certain amount of um, you know displacement, certain amount of change that can happen. Um, you know, so that, that that's a way to accelerate it, you know, but then again you still run into challenges. Like even you said like that web of connectivity. It's like yes, it is it is strong in that each frame may be connected, you know, or you know have overlapping um, you know, connections or, or features that are in common, these, these key point detections, you know, from, you know, five seconds ahead and five seconds behind. Um, but it is still just, you know, like a single loop around the pile contrasted with something like, you know, if you had 10 people out measuring the pile at the same time, you know, or like, um, I think back to my PhD work where I was reconstructing famous landmarks and there it's, you've got a hundred thousand photos, you know, of the Colosseum in Rome you know, mm -hmm. or the Pantheon or, or whatever it is, you know, other famous landmarks around the world. Uh, and so there you have a bunch of different camera positions, you know, ones that are near, ones that are far, uh, both left and right and up and, you know, different elevations. Um, so this, you know, massive, you know, much stronger set, you know, of connectivity, that web of connectivity. Coming here to that video, yes, I have some temporal connectivity, but it is just still a single walking path, uh, usually from like a single distance from that pile. Um, and so there also are some uh, limitations, I'll say, not limitations, but uh, challenges um, where, you know, because there's, you know, less connectivity than something that's, you know, much more, you know, generic structure motion approach, you know, we had to be careful when we were designing the algorithms to process that, you know, video-based reconstruction to say, well, mm -hmm. hey, let's pay careful attention to those connections, you know, and make sure we're leveraging as much of those temporal constraints as possible. Okay, so... I want to use this technique to not model a stockpile, but let's say I just want to model um, a movie set. Yeah. Um, I would ideally, and I and so the great thing about videos is it's fast. So if I want to go take take images of a, a site of a set, I know there might be people moving around or things get might get moved. And I only have a few minutes. To me, this seems like a great way to go. I can quickly capture lots of images through a video sequence, um, but you suggest not just, I'm going to walk back and forth across the set. I should probably walk across the set, move the camera higher, change the angle a little bit. If you go back to our older episodes of Computer Vision Dakota, we, we do talk about, you know, getting ideal imagery, but, and that's what we're talking about. It's like, you want to not just get like one, one elevation, 
one kind of locked direction, we want to get multiple angles as much as you have time to realistically capture. So I, I should just aim for more. I'm sure there's a point where, you know, I'm not going to take 10 minutes of video of a small little section of a site, but, but giving two, three different viewpoints or elevation changes, things like that will really help strengthen this and get you a better result. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's, and, and to put a little broader context, I mean, so here at every point, you know, we've got a, you know, very generic structure promotion pipeline, general purpose pipeline that can process, you know, any sort of imagery we want to throw at it, you know, but what we've done as we've been powering the stock power reports application, you know, come back to that just for a second, you know, there it's, we said, well, hey, because we are, because we know we are targeting a stockpile measurement, you know, we can adjust the algorithms, adjust the processing pipeline, adjust the settings to target you know, that, that sort of use case so that we know that we're delivering, you know, an accurate, precise reconstruction, you know, of that stockpile from a single loop. If mm -hmm. you're now looking at the more generic case of, oh, I'm gonna walk on a movie set or walk around my house or, you know, other objects, you know, and, and capture them, um, then that's when I'm saying, well, hey, I mean, I won't necessarily use that stockpile optimized pipeline, you know, instead would fall back on a generic pipeline, but still having that video is really nice in those temporal constraints, you know, and so, uh, as you mentioned, going back to one of our previous podcasts, talking about, you know, what, what are the ideal capture patterns and combining these ideal capture patterns with that sort of video-based collection technique is a nice way to make sure that you maintain, maintain, maintain connectivity between your imagery and are able to leverage those temple constraints in that reconstruction. It makes sense. All right. Well, let's move along. So we've, we, we started... I mean, every point started with this, this stockpile reports. And yeah, 2012, 2013, we officially launched a product, takes videos. Um, we knew that drones were coming on the horizon. Um, and then 2015, I believe, 2016, we started implementing that in the EveryPoint pipeline to, to, to allow our customers to use drones. Actually, we were actually using airplanes as well. Mm -hmm. So before that, so we were using aerial-based images. And instead of taking a video... You took, uh, you took uh, images, and so instead of a video base, we're going to image based structure for motion. Um, so we obviously there can be some temporal components about it, right? I can say I'm going to take each picture in sequence, but depends on how you go around a scene. That might make make sense. So can you tell me like what's the difference there? Like what 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 is what is different about using just images versus video? And maybe we'll touch on some pros and cons here. Yeah, yeah. So just the 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 high level there between you know images and video is video by default gives you those temporal constraints. You know, if your video is recorded at 30 frames per second or 60 frames per second, you know that there's a really short amount of time between those frames, which means then there's high overlap in that image content. Mm -hmm. You know, if it was just generic images, sometimes you may not know how much overlap there is. If these are just, you know, some random person capturing imagery, you know, there's no constraints about what the overlap is. Um, fortunately, like you mentioned here with drones, um, you know, all the, you know, the most modern drones that you would use for some sort of aerial photography support uh, mission planning. You know, and so you can mm -hmm. customize and say, hey, I'm, as I want my drone to go and fly some sort of grid pattern over a location and between consecutive images, uh, I would like there to be 75% overlap uh, in that or 50% overlap or some amount of, of overlap. You know, and so there you have uh, some notion of temporal constraints. These images have mm -hmm. timestamps or I know in what sequence they were captured in. So there's a high probability, you know, that two consecutive images are going to have similar content. 
uh, a difference between a drone flight and a video is, you know, in that drone flight, if I'm, um, if that drone, for instance, is flying back and forth in some grid pattern, you know, it may see the same point on in the scene, same point on the ground, you know, at multiple different points in time. You know, mm -hmm. so if I imagine, a, you know, a, a grid pattern where it's kind of like a lawnmower, you go up and back and forth, um, you know, on that first pass, that first flight line, it may have seen something on the ground and the drone turns around, comes back again, flies another flight line. Well, it may see that same point on the ground again. And even like that third flight line as it passes by, um, you know, there may, you may see that point uh, both within a flight line as well as across different flight lines. Contrast that with the, you know, an iPhone uh, pipeline or like a, or sort of a video pipeline, you know, for I'm doing just a single loop, it's like, well, hey, there is only one sort of consecutive uh, set of frames that saw that point, um, you know, and so there's there, there's a that that web of connectivity has a different pattern, a different style to it, you know, instead of a single path around the scene, now you have this, you know, this grid, this lattice of connectivity between the images, which has its own set of pros and cons. Yeah, um, I'm going to share a, again. Our, our video viewers here. Um, here's a drone set, and I decided not to show stockpiles. This actually came from Jeffrey Wolf uh, from uh, Jeffrey Wolf Photography, and he sent me this that we processed to every point pipeline, and it was drones. And so if I if I click on these and show that pattern that we were exactly were talking about, lawnmower pattern, you can take off the point cloud, and you see this perfect grid. And that's the great thing about letting a computer handle the images. He just said take. Take, take overlap of a certain percentage. Each image has actually got a, a they're, they're not exactly straight down. There's some obliqueness to them. Uh, but then there's actually a ring around the edge, a whole ring, because we were trying to get around this, this dome. So you get a bunch of different angles, but I didn't, you didn't have to rely at least on, on, on the drone pilot to, to get exactly the right image spacing. But if I click on some of these, you can kind of see um, how they, they just kind of overlap as you go through. I can click through. Um, and each one is just kind of like the next image in a line, and they're really tightly spaced. I don't know if these are actually progressing or not, but um, that's what you end up with is this tight pattern, which is really nice if you have a drone. But if you're walking around with the DSLR, uh, <laughs> you're doing this human automation, being a human, you're not going to get that, right? So. That is a kind of like a great strategy if you can automate, especially capture. Yeah. Or else you really need to know what you're doing. Um, I can also show that connectivity grid for anyone that is watching. So if I turn on connectivity, you see because we use a computer to, to decide when to take the pictures, it maintained a really strong connectivity. There's actually less connectivity in the middle here. If I turn on the point cloud, that's just because the... the the dome was much closer to the camera. And so it you just don't see as much. The further away objects are, the more you're going to see. So that's what happened there. But still, the computer was able to maintain a really strong connectivity um, in, in the structure for motion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so if you think about that connectivity, kind of just coming back um, to that, one of, one of the key phrases or keywords that you know, comes up a lot in our work or just in computer vision is this concept of loop closure. Um, now, loop closure doesn't mean I haven't, you know, it, it, yes, it does apply to the case where I have physically walked around a loop, you know, walked around an object, a car or a stockpile or something else. I've walked around and I've come back to the beginning again. You know, I have completed that loop. I have closed the loop, you know, uh, but more generally, a loop closure is just the notion of revisiting a place that you've already been, you know, and so 
um, in this case with this drone, there is a ton of loop closures. You know, every time that drone you know, is flying north to south in a flight line, between different flight lines, or in this case, the drone is even flying north to south and then east to west, as well as then a circular orbit uh, at the end. Each of these passes that saw the same part of the scene, but from multiple angles at different points in time, are all just additional loop closures, uh, which have to be discovered via structure from motion techniques. Um, you, know, you don't have necessarily have those temporal constraints, but it's saying, hey, here's two, two distinct parts of the trajectory, or two distinct parts of that image set you know, that saw the same part of the scene. You know, and the computer vision methods need to discover that you know, and then use those as constraints uh, when mm -hmm. they're doing the reconstruction. Okay. So if you're going to take images, not a video, I mean, there's a lot of overlap in strategy. Obviously, you can have a loop closure in both. You, I mean, a video, you want to keep coming back to known places. Um, but in pictures, I feel like it's even more important because we can't rely on the fact that every picture will have a perfect overlap. Yep. To, you know, so that just helps. Um, and so if you're taking this with a DSLR, a mirrorless camera, just taking your iPhone camera, you're not taking videos, but you're taking, or, you know, any smartphone, just a regular camera, um, do you just tell people to overshoot, you know, let's just take more photos than they probably think. And that's what I always notice. Every time I go out and take photos of something, let's say it'd be my, my, a shoe, I'm like, oh man, I think I took like a couple hundred photos and then I offload them off my camera onto my computer and realized it took like 50. It feels <laughs> like you're digging more. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's kind of like take small movements, overshoot. You can always remove photos, but uh, you know, it's, that's, that is that is the trade-off, right? Yeah. So yeah. yeah. And that's 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 come my kind of thing is um yeah, you, you just always be taking photos, you know, and so like, you know, a 3D model of a house. Like I've walked around my house countless times trying to model the exterior of it for just for fun, for testing or for various things. And there it's like every time I take a step, take a photo, take a photo. You know, every time, you know, every step I'm having a new photo. Because yeah, as a human, we look at this house and we're like, oh yeah, it's obviously the same house. I can take 10 steps. It's still the same thing. You know, but that's because we're, you know, our humans, our, our, our brains are doing a lot more um, than these computer vision techniques are necessarily doing. You know, the, the, the computer vision techniques benefit a lot when there's, uh, the difference between images is relatively small. You know, it's, it's able to find then, um, connections between those images that don't have a lot of difference and then link those all together to reconstruct that walking path. And so, yeah, a lot of times you want to take even, you know, overshoot, as you said there, you know, overshoot, capture more image than, you know, than you'd expect um, just to help ensure that you had good overlap and connectivity between those still frames. Okay. So uh, perhaps a question I, I, you know, I should have asked a long time ago, can you overshoot? Can I, can I have too small of a, of a change, like let's say I did a ninety-nine percent overlap, like it's practically the same image. Would just any of these structure from motion pipelines used? Would they just omit images if it doesn't help? Uh, is that gonna? Is that basically is that gonna yeah, harm yeah. the result, or is it just just not gonna really help? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's a, that's a good point. Um, you know, and and so there's not necessarily a a harm to overshooting as long as you're patient. You know, so if you capture a ton of images that have, you know, 99% overlap and try to throw them in a reconstruction method, that reconstruction method will give you a good, you know, beautiful model. It just might take 10 times longer, 100 times longer because there's so much redundancy, so much overlap between that imagery, uh, the computation time is just going to go through the roof. Um, it's mm -hmm. actually one of the benefits. Going, going back to the video-based pipeline that we've built at every point, you know, a video has 
30 frames per second, 60 frames per second. You know, the, the overlap between consecutive frames is insanely high. And so if you naively just take every single video frame and try to do a reconstruction from that, yeah, those reconstructions are going to take forever. And so mm -hmm. we've spent a lot of time optimizing our video-based pipeline to do the optimal frame selections from that. So instead of processing every frame, um, you know, picking out, well, what is the best subset of frames that gives you a really high accurate result? A lot of times people say, has hey, a quick shortcut, you know, just take every, you know, th you know, 30th frame. So like extract frames every, you know, one per second or two times per second from the video. And that's a quick shortcut, you know, but that is, you know, th th there's plenty of ways that, that can fail. If someone was moving quickly, you know, in the, even in that, you know, two frame a second extraction, you may have missed uh, the improper amount of overlap. Um, and so there's, yeah, there are trade-offs. You don't want to have too many frames. Um, and so you, you, there is a benefit to um, being a little selective. But again, if, if, if I'm going out and capturing these photos manually, you know, it would be really painful to take you know, photos with 99% overlap. You'd be doing, you'd be walking around taking photos for forever. Uh, yeah, and I, and I noticed, uh, so talking about that, the naive way that just, I call it the, the basic way of just taking a program like FFmpeg, which can yep. extract images from a video. And if you say, yeah, I want one frame per second or every 30th frame, whatever it is, there's also a chance that on that 30th frame, you happen to have stumbled or shook the camera a little hard. And now it's just saying, okay, now you have a blurry frame, but perhaps two or three frames prior and, or after that, you had a really clear frame. So, yeah, yeah. you know, there's there's that huge trade-off of, well, now I don't have a good image to as a source just because I just took a shortcut, which is a way to go. But yeah. again, yeah. it's like every point we've done a lot of work just intelligently deciding what images to use. Let's not just t pick every 30 frames or every, or every 30th frame. Let's pick the best frame to make this work as you go along in videos. Okay, yeah, so yeah. you're exactly what, right. I mean, that's like, like, I mean, just to be honest, I mean, like, yeah, in my personal projects, if I go out and I'm capturing a video of my house or my car or, you know, some environment, um, yeah, there, I, I may just use FFmpeg and extract every, you know, 30th frame because it's there. It's okay. I did the collect. I was walking at a consistent pace and speed and I knew that I didn't trip and, you know, and so just as a shortcut, Maybe, oh, yeah, I'm just going to run this on my machine. I'll run FFmpeg, quick throw through, structure for motion, done. Hey, and I get a great result. But it's it's when you move from these sort of one-off tests into a system that needs to support, you know, real customers, real users, you know, at scale, you know, users who are not photogrammetry experts. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's when you need to build in this robustness to say, well, hey, what is that optimal frame selection? What is the optimal way to leverage the various temporal constraints, you know, or detect and leverage the loop closures to generate that reconstruction? All right. Okay. So that makes sense. And that's always think if you're going to put this out in production in the field, you got to make it robust. Yeah. yeah. You can't make it work just in a lab. Uh, okay. So I want to make sure we have time to keep moving along. So now we've, you know, the one thing I guess I'd, I just to put a bow on top of the images versus video, if you are capturing objects and you want them to look perfect for a game for VFX images with the high end camera are going to get you textures. And that is one thing that you will not get optimized with video because you got some motion blur. But again, I'm assuming if you're taking high-end photogrammetry for objects and you're listening to this, you probably are not learning too much. <laughs> so, but just know that if you're if you're going to dive into this and want to say I want to really learn to make objects for game development, things like that, animations, 
learn to use images. That's that's the big the big pro to that is you can get nice textures, better textures. Um, so okay, so now we're gonna move on. So as the timeline of every point kept evolving, um, and drones are great, iPhones are great. Perhaps the 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 biggest roadblock to both of those being helpful for solving problems can be that there's a human involved. You know, sp specifically for um, having to operate a camera, walk around, that to have some knowledge. Uh, you can't just have, let's say, you put it at a manufacturing site. You can't just say, "Hey, you know, hey, someone over there, can you go grab some images?" They might not know what they're doing. So if you use, let's say, cameras that are always there installed, we call them installed cameras then you always have cameras where they're supposed to be taking images and now you don't have a human and you can you can take way more images way more often solve a whole nother set of problems and you take you take that element of having to deploy an actual person out to grab images and so we started using installed cameras to 3d model environments to give us answers on things like do i have enough rock for my batch plant to to keep producing product for the next two days, things like that. And so um, in the past, you're talking about a lot of images. We're taking hundreds of photos, thousands of images from a video. Uh, with installed cameras, we're using two cameras. So uh, I will show a pair of cameras and kind of a 3D model as as Jared is talking about that. But can you, so the big pro here is I don't have to put a person out there. Uh, and it's pretty easy to engineer just two static cameras, but what what's different? Like, what? How are we able to get away with such little amount of imagery now and still get a useful result? Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Two images is you know the total opposite end of the spectrum from you know where where we kind of started with structure for motion. So typically, structure for motion benefits a lot when you have redundancy. You know, and so that's why with these, you know, a drone collect, yeah, I may have hundreds of photos, you know, that, that video collect mm -hmm. had thousands and thousands of frames, you know, in it originally that then we're able to, you know, select the optimal subset from, you know, and so you have this, you know, high amount of overlap, high amount of redundancy, each point in the scene is seen by, you know, tens of different images from different perspectives, and you get this really high accurate triangulation. So going now to the opposite and saying, hey, I only have two photos, uh, there's a lot of things going on there to, to make that happen. You know, at, at the very core is that, well, two images is sort of the, the minimal amount you need to estimate your depth in the scene. Um, you know, and so if I have two images, think about like your, your, your pair of eyes. You know, I have two eyes. Mm -hmm. You know, my eyes can see a point in the scene from two different perspectives. And so that I can triangulate then a point on the scene because I've seen it from two different two different positions in space. Mm -hmm. um, so here's here's the two images. Here we go. Way, yeah. So that, so so Jonathan's showing an example here. We're at an outdoor site. We've got these uh, materials stacked up between these concrete blocks, and so we've got you know two cameras that each take a photo from slightly different different angles. Uh, and I'm not just angles as in the term of um, like oh I just rotated the camera in place. No, it's two physical positions. You know, so one camera's mounted in one position. This other camera's mounted, you know, 10, 20, 30 feet away. Uh, you know, depending on depending on the size of the scene. Um, but yeah, so you have this sort of minimal amount of information um, to be able to triangulate points in the scene. Uh, and so you need to pay really careful attention because you don't have that redundancy. I don't have three, four, five, six, 10, 20, 30, 100 different cameras seeing these points. I just have two, you know, and so you have to pay really, really careful attention to you know, the way you've calibrated the lenses or compensate for distortion. Um, you know, the 
even though we say, hey, these are installed cameras, um, it's it's cameras are still going to move or wiggle, you know, whether that if these cameras are on a pole that perhaps can vibrate or might get bumped, um, even depending on how the uh, camera and lens is constructed. You know, if there's some sort of autofocus mechanism in there, um, those lens elements, you know, can slightly shift and move. And so you're going to change the field of view or slightly change the distortion. Um, you know, and so there's all these, there's some different ways, you know, that these, uh, the images can be affected or, you know, slightly changed through time. And so it's just, it's paying really, really careful attention, you know, to the distortion, to that, uh, the pose estimation, the position and orientation estimation of those cameras, you know, and then that depth calculation saying for each of these points in the scene, I'm only seeing them by two cameras. So let's be really confident, you know, and, and accurate in the way that we're doing that triangulation so that we're able to recover the geometry of the scene um, and provide provide customers with answers. So in this case, you know, the every point engine, we built this, you know, sort of installed camera pipeline where we can say, hey, if I've got, you know, a minimal set of cameras installed at some location that are continually watching something in the scene, um, you know, we can we can deliver uh, insights based on that on what's recovered there. And so in the case of stockpile reports, it's delivering answers about the, the volume of these uh, piles of material as they change throughout the day. Yeah, and I'm, I'm actually trying to bring up a good visual for that, just kind of show you one of the piles. Um, so here, trying to get it to, to show on my screen here. But basically, we took, you know, we target specific stockpile and able to say, okay, I want to know how much is in that pile. Uh, but actually, the interesting thing is you can solve different problems now. Now you got this sort of imagery at a higher cadence. So let's bring up my screen one more time. Um, in, now I'm I'm moving to not telling you how much is in there right now. I'm moving into, you know, like how, how much time left do I have on this pile? So this this here, this this is a 3D model um, that we generated just from these two images of that darker material. So again, if you're listening, what we have here is a picture of bunkers of stockpiles. So let's just think of like piles of rock pushed into bins where they have walls around all the sides. Well, one nice thing about having two cameras and walls is that we know constraints. We know the we know the piles can't go outside the walls. Um, you know, so there's some some end to the back of them, so we don't need to see the back because we know when, when the end, where the back is. But from there, we can then take those two images, create a three D model um, of those piles, and then tell a client you have. 30 hours of material left for production here, or you have five hours and do I need to get more trucks in with that? So uh, that's something you could never do with a drone. I mean, you would not be able to give someone an hourly or every 30 minute update on that. There'd be no way, you know, it wouldn't make financial sense to have someone flying a drone. And plus, you know, because we know, because Jared, you know all these things about this, these cameras for the locations, everything. I can imagine the processing time is just infinitely faster. Yeah. Um, you not infinite, but <laughs> um, you know what I'm saying is is you're not you're not there, you're there's, not there's... having to figure out where the cameras are in your pipeline. You're not having to then you know do a lot of those steps that can be very time consuming um, to get a 3D model. But again, a lot of limitations. I can't move those cameras. They have to be where they are. Those cameras do move, so there might be some error. Um, so yeah. it's a unique. It's a unique way to get a 3D model. Uh, it takes, I think, a little bit more know-how of what you're doing, a little bit more setup. Um, 
But if you want to monitor things, I want to know if a rail car is there and if it's something's out of spec because I get a 3D model of the rail car every time it's in a specific location. I have cameras set up in the right location. I might be able to alert, uh, you know, someone who manages those rail cars, things like that. I think of examples that where this is very useful. Um, yeah. And I think indoor environments are always easier. You don't have the elements, but, you know, you're, you're trying to track things in a warehouse, trying to figure out how the volume of things piled up in a certain area every every day. So, you know, if you're in spec for um, some, something that's that should or shouldn't be there. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And then you also, with all these, there's machine learning we can use. So, but the great thing about having these static images is I can start to learn things about the scene. I can throw images into and in, in tra- train on data saying every time I know these are here, we're going to put that as part of our annotated training set. We know we're going to get good photos. So there's, there's a lot of applications you can go from having yeah. these installed cameras that are uniquely uh, exciting to me um, as opposed to just having to have a human out there with a camera or even a robot dr- roving around with a camera, being a drone or a rolling robot, something like that. Yeah. Uh, you just can't I, I just echo, echo that back. I mean, it's, it's the same thing with me. It's like the, the, the kinds of answers that you can deliver. Like you said, with if someone has to go out with uh, a smartphone or a DSLR, you know, so if someone has to go out with a camera or a drone and do a measurement, well, then it's you're only getting those measurements when a human took the effort, took the time to go out and capture that imagery. And capturing the imagery, you know, it takes a certain amount of time. You know, it takes a minute or two to walk around that pile. Mm-hmm. It takes tens of minutes, perhaps, to fly that drone. Um, you know, and so it's not. You know, not a continual feed of imagery. It's imagery captured at very discrete points in time. Whereas contrasted with this, you know, sort of installed camera application, now I've got this camera that's watching my scene. In this case, a stockpile, like you said, it could have been a warehouse, a shipping yard, you know, where you can be looking at, you know, objects and cargo and vehicles, you know, and understanding how much is there, how is it moving, when did it move, uh, and and understanding the, the dynamics of that scene instead of just sort of the static, the static nature of it. Mm-hmm. So going from these static measurements of environment, static reconstructions of environment to, again, you know, we can do discrete static reconstructions from these, you know, from an installed camera, but then also adding that to the layer of, well, no, now it's, it's a much higher frequency. Mm-hmm. Um, we can, we can see things moving through that imagery, understand what its depth is in that scene. Uh, and use that to deliver answers that are derived both from the 3D geometry as well as just the 2D semantics. Uh, as you mentioned, they're touching on the, you know, the machine learning component. Mm-hmm. All right. So I'm going to move on to the to the fourth and final uh, method in which, at least at every point, we've been um, using imagery and doing doing 3D reconstruction. And this one, to me, is really exciting. I think it's 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 kind of earned its place into everyone's pocket. It's a uh, Using using slam using, um, basically really fast ways to model a scene in three D, and as we're seeing, uh, the iPhone's AR kit, um, suite of tools, it, it, you know, come onto the scene with the iPhone. Actually, came out before the Pro versions, but even with the Pro ones and the lidar, we're 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 seeing all of a sudden people just waving phones around, getting three D models, and it's magic. Uh, it's using imagery, so um, I'm going to actually tease basically how we 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 are using it to our fullest. I would say not the lidar, but using what's called SLAM, which which Jared's going to explain to us what it is in a minute. But we're using it to to measure stockpiles now in like seconds. So I actually 
he's going to talk and I'm going to pull up another video again showing that that stockpile I showed at the very start where someone walks around, takes a video, does a stockpile measurement. In 2012, that took like 18 hours to turn around a result. 2022, 2023, we got that down to, you know, half hour, something like that. Um, but now we're able to do it in like seconds on an iPhone. So Jared, what's slamming? How, how is that unlocking us to be able to measure on an iPhone in in like a minute or less, uh, you know, uh, a stockpile, making a 3D model that we're able to, to learn a lot about things from that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So SLAM, uh, just to break that, that, that acronym down, SLAM stands for Simultaneous Localization and Mapping. Okay, what does that mean? That means simultaneous localization means I am understanding where my camera is in 3D space at the same time as I am mapping that space and creating a 3D model of it. So it's, it's very similar to the goals of structure from motion, you know, where structure from motion is mm -hmm. also trying to recover the position of my camera as well as the geometry in the scene. But instead of doing that uh, in sort of an offline post-process mode, SLAM says, hey, I need to be doing all of this 3D estimation in real time as that camera is moving. Um, the most uh, frequent case you might see, you know, why would something, you know, why would I need SLAM? You know, maybe it's because it's I'm doing an augmented reality application where I'm superimposing virtual objects on top of the real live footage that I'm seeing. You know, this is also used a lot in robotics as a robot is navigating environment through a warehouse, through a, a city, you know, autonomous driving, you mm -hmm. know, that, that vehicle, that robot needs to understand where it is in 3D space as it's driving um, so that it doesn't, you know, crash into things and, 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 and do the wrong stuff. So, um, so SLAM is, you know, 3D reconstruction, but in real time. Uh, and you mentioned their AR kit. So that is Apple's, you know, sort of take on SLAM in order to power augmented reality applications. So it's not sort of a general purpose SLAM method. You know, it doesn't expose, you know, the uh, accurate 3D seam geometry, you know, and the pose estimation that it's doing doesn't have to be perfect. It just needs to be good enough for uh, augmented reality applications. Um, but, you know, it is now yet another tool in the toolbox uh, that at every point, you know, we can use when we're building computer vision systems. Yeah, and so um, actually, there's two things I want to show. So early on, when they when when I we started to really see this kind of happening live on an iPhone or actually an iPad Pro 2020 model came out, and Jared, um, being as he is, loves to get his hands on these things and just test, test, test like an engineer would and see where it works best, where it doesn't, so we know how to use it. Um, he he posted on his Twitter feed, out of all things. So let me share my screen here. So if you follow Jared, he's at Jared Heinley, and I'll make sure he's on the show notes here. But he actually really dove into the sensor, and he's got a great thread of tweets, and I'll make sure I've kind of linked these into the show notes. But he was walking around and doing like, this is like a city block that yeah. he was in real time getting points on. It's usually in you know, the tracking of the iPhone, which is doing slam. But what I thought was really cool is if I um, if I go, one thing he notices, like you said, it's not perfect. Mm. When he came around to the end of the block, we had two storefronts, but are obviously the same storefront. And they're in two different locations. So that is one thing that can be corrected after post, you know, post, post um, collection there. But that is something to know about. It's, it's not perfect. It's doing fast ways to then 
relocalize you, figure out where the scene is, is fixed. But that's where like loop closure really helps. Yep. And sometimes waiting longer might be better, but sometimes, I mean, how often are you walking around a city block? If you're walking around a much smaller scene, things are not going to drift very far apart. If they do, it's going to be, you might not even notice, or it might be really small. So, you know, kind of know where, you know, what you need. I'm seeing these, seeing a lot of slam too. I was at a conference where they had a lot of like uh, Navis and GeoSlam has all these different LiDAR slam sensors and they all have imagery on them, all these cameras as well. And, uh, you know, they're not as good as these, these, these traditional scanners that take a lot longer, but hey, it's fast and there's a little bit more accumulated air, but to people, it's like, this is a great way to get data pretty much in real time that you wouldn't, uh, you know, you would not be able to do any other way. Yeah, yeah. And just, I mean, just to highlight what's showing here, I mean, this, this is sort of, a, that's a powerful visualization yeah, seeing up. that, hey, if you walk around an entire city block, um, you know, you, you end up roughly near where you start. So if I come back to that same, you know, door, you know, storefront, um, you know, the, the, in this case, AR kit, AR kit's estimate of my camera position was relatively close, but there is a noticeable gap, you know, over that, you know, 500 foot walking path, I end up at the end with a, you know, 20 or 30 foot, you know, uh, distance between there, mm -hmm. uh, which is great for rough visualization, you know, but if you're trying to do any sort of measurement off of this or, have, you know, have this look like a single consistent model, uh, yeah, it's not good enough, you know, and so that's because in ARKit's implementation of SLAM, you know, they're not doing loop closure detection. You know, and so it's that this notion of, hey, when I return to a point in the scene again, make sure that that lines up with what I had seen prior. You know, mm -hmm. AR kit's designed for that augmented reality application where all I care about is just, does my current augmented reality view make sense? Uh, it's not that, hey, if I came back to something 30 seconds later, is it exactly where I left it? You know, and so there, there's there's some trade-offs there um, in the way that AR kit uh is designed and, and the sort of the use case it's going after. Yeah. But th th this this was what it was nice for me as sort of an engineer saying, well, hey, I have I now have access to a SLAM system that's been optimized by Apple for iOS devices, and I can use that as yet another input, you know, and you leverage our own SLAM, you know, implementation or our own structure for motion algorithms to uh, accelerate and improve the results here. And so as Jonathan mentioned, you know, now with stockpile reports, you know, we have this capability where someone can take their iPhone, walk around a stockpile, maybe they spend a minute walking around that pile, but within five seconds after they complete that loop, now they've got a reconstruction and a volume report, and they can see that 3D model of their pile along with its volume right yep. there on the phone. So again, if you're listening on a podcast, you don't get to see this visual, but if you look at SR measure, which is the, the application that we have launched this on. You'll see all kinds of marketing content we've put out there, some examples in real time. But yeah, look at that. You're Jared, why are, what are all these dots I'm seeing on the yeah. screen? So what, what, what you're seeing is a camera replaying, walking around a stockpile rock, and there's dots peering all over the scene. What is that? Yeah, so the dots, that's a preview of some of the uh, features, some of the key points that are being tracked through the scene. You know, as I mentioned before about well, how does all this work? Well, it works by identifying common parts of the scene and following them from frame to frame. And so that's what these colored dots are, are providing you as, as a preview of a, you know, a subset of those points saying, here are the parts of the scene that we found. And then uh, as we see those points from frame to frame to frame, you know, they start changing colors. Um, and here, and we built into the app, as you finish and come back to the start, you know, an arrow appears saying, hey, you're almost there, keep walking. 
and then we run that computation. Um, you can even see part of the model, kind of the preview being built in real time. And then once we've optimized that model, solved, you know, handled all the loop closure constraints, optimized for, for accuracy and precision, you know, then we compute the volume and can deliver that, that volume report right there on the phone. Which is amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, considering it took 18, 24 hours, I think even longer in 2012 for us. Now on the iPhone 14, the speed of the processor, the tools, the SLAM, everything is amazing. Um, so this is a really, a, I'd say, it's a great foundation. Even if you're just using AirKit without any other modifications, it might be all you need. If uh, We always like to joke about you're putting a dancing dinosaur on a tabletop for some sort of augmented reality application, and you're doing a small space, your desk, a room. The air is probably not a problem. You probably don't need to go to the links, but... You can even then take AR kit and you can use someone like Jared or every point. They can always build on top of that and we can make much, much better, you know, end use application of that, in fact, by just, you know, adding a little bit, a little bit more um, computation on top of what, what you yeah. get from AR kit. Yeah. So it's and, like and, it's, and, it's that, and it's that adding that extra computation to me, that's, that's sort of like the secret sauce, you know, is, you know, computer vision as a whole is a very powerful tool. You know, but it's a very broad and generic tool, you know, and so it's how do you take this tool, which is computer vision and apply it to particular application, a particular business problem? You know, are you trying to measure the volume of a stockpile? Are you trying to create a beautiful 3D mesh of a house? Are you trying to track the activity of cargo as it's loaded and unloaded from ships at a shipping port? You know, so you have each of these different applications you know, where it's, I'm using computer vision as a tool to solve a particular problem. And so it's how then do I use that tool in the best way possible for that application? How, how can I modify that tool? And so that's what we've done here to, you know, to build every point is saying, well, hey, we've got structure for motion, we've got computer vision, we've got slam, you know, we've got this computer vision toolbox. And then as we start, as you tackle different applications, that toolbox can be tailored. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to pull out my Phillips head screwdriver instead of my flathead, or I'm going to pull out this kind of you know, wrench instead of this other one, because I know that for this particular problem, it has the, you know, the accuracy, the precision, or the, the performance trade-offs that I'm looking for, for that, for that particular problem. And so that's why I just, I love thinking about this, thinking about how do I take computer vision and apply it to different problems? And so you see it here with SR measure, it's saying, well, that's a very specific problem. We're measuring a pile of material, you know, and the user's doing a, a loop around that and they're capturing video and we've got sensor data and, and, and visual imagery. So how can I pick the right tools from my computer vision toolbox to deliver that answer as fast as possible? And so that's just, it's a fun way to, uh, I just, I absolutely love, you know, building applications like this and thinking about how do you take computer vision and really tailor it to particular applications. So, so what's, what's the future from here then? I mean, it's hard to get quicker than that. You basically, <laughs> the time it takes to walk the pile, I guess that's where we get into automated drones and robots and things just walking around, capturing, and then it being uploaded. So kind of, kind of like along the lines of our installed cameras, but now you're starting to get this on. We've, we've explored cable cameras. We've explored all sorts of rolling robots, walking robots, flying robots. Yeah, That's why we're into it because, again, human can be the one roadblock here. We've Absolutely. got it down to seconds, but you still got to have someone there. Yep. As that goes away, we can get data really fast. We can solve a lot more problems that way. Um, I guess I guess the other frontier I, I, I speculate is as we learn more and more and more about environments that you 
constantly are mapping and turning to 3D models and imaging, eventually you just become context aware. We'll know off of a few images how big something is, you know, and that's what we're starting to see in like AI, you know, starting to train neural networks and different sorts of uh, algorithms just to recognize you have plenty of material. You don't have enough material. It's time to order it just off of a single image. Um, so not to say that's the solution you need, but yeah, it's hard, hard, to, hard to see where we go from here, except for taking humans out of it. Cause we're the roadblock. We're the slow yeah. part. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're spot on. You're spot on, you know, in, in, in that road to digitization, you know, of supply chains and, and assets in the real world, humans are the bottleneck, you know, <laughs> it's hard so to believe, that, but it's, it's true. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> and, and so it's, it's now, and that's, you know, coming back to that installed camera case, like you said there with, you know, installed cameras or robots, it's automating that digitization process, you know, because it's, but once you can automate that, now you can get answers and insights in real time, you know, and then mm -hmm. drive, you know, business applications or drive real answers for, you know, real customers and consumers. Well, Jared, I think this was very informative. Hopefully people who are not even in computer vision, but are just trying to understand it. I think this might really help them to say, there's more than one way to get a 3D model. There's pros and cons. I wouldn't say any one of these four ways is the best way. It's what's the way that you need for what you're going for. Um, and then, and then, yeah, if, I think if people want to learn more, then they reach out to us. They reach out to people who are trying to educate everyone. Um, I'll steer you in the right direction. If you ever talk to me, Jared, same as well. If you connect with him online, um, you know, try and figure out what, what the best method is for you and how, you, you know, it always kind of starts with what's your end goal, right? So you can engineer whatever you want, but it's deciding what's the most elegant solution to get us there. So, yep. so all right. Well, thank you. This was really helpful. Um, I'm excited to, to, to see what else we build here at every point and we can showcase, but I thought this was a great way just for people to learn through real world examples of how we've used it. Um, and again, Jared, how do we find you online if people want to follow you? I'll make sure you're in the show notes, but go ahead and throw yeah, your, you throw can out find there. me on Twitter, you know, at Jared Hindley or also on LinkedIn again, Jared Hindley. All right. And I'm again, I'm Jonathan Stevens or at John Stevens 85 on Twitter. I'll link those in the notes here and I will see you in the next episode, Jared. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed this latest episode of Computer Vision Decoded. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on all major podcast platforms. If you watch this on YouTube, you can also subscribe to the EveryPoint channel to get all the latest episodes if they come out. I want to give a big thanks to Jared Heinle for joining us on this episode and I'll make sure we see you in the next one.